So the evacuations out of Texas have already begun. A lot of reasons to evacuate Texas on today's show, I'm afraid. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Love you, Texas. I got the feeling that something right. Really? I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. In Oregon on 91.7 KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 WLRI. In Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM. In Palinville, New York on 102.9 WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR. In New Orleans on 102.3 WHIV. In Washington, D.C. on 105.5 and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Deprogrammed Radio, Detour Talk, and Radio Sputnik. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. Welcome, one and all. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, and only me, from bradblog.com. Greatly appreciate you joining us here today. I uh, got a lot to get to. I uh, got a guest coming up very momentarily, sort of picking up Desi Doyen where we left off yesterday at the end of the show with that breaking news that was coming out of uh, Texas, a federal court yet again, yet another federal court. Nobody can keep track of how many federal courts have found Texas's photo ID voting restriction to be uh, unconstitutional, a violation of the Voting Rights Act. But Intentionally, racially discriminatory. Exactly. Right. Uh, yeah, oi. And so uh, we'll be talking about that momentarily. Also, uh, Desi Doyen, we've got... Not just a green green news report, but we now have um, a, bu- a bunch of other stuff that has uh, broken in since the time we put together today's GNR, uh, including what now looks like is a full-fledged hurricane brewing in the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, buckle up, folks. It's gonna be a, it's gonna be a doozy. It is heading to Texas uh, and Louisiana, and uh, hopefully not. Uh, f- well, our our uh, listeners at uh, our affiliate partner WHIV in New Orleans hope you guys will be okay here. But we will talk about the path of that uh, and much more ahead in the Green News Report. But first, our country has changed. Chief Justice John Roberts wrote for the 5-4 majority in Shelby County, Alabama versus Eric Holder back in 2013. That was the case that gutted a key section of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. He went on to say, while any racial discrimination in voting is too much, Congress must ensure that the legislation it passes to remedy that problem speaks to current conditions. 
He wrote that the then-current list of jurisdictions with long histories of racial discrimination at the polling place in the Voting Rights Act was out of date, and Congress needed to develop a new formula to determine which of those jurisdictions, mostly states in the South, still needed to receive federal approval from the Department of Justice or the federal court in D.C. before implementing new election-related laws, which might disproportionately disenfranchise minority voters. Congress must identify those jurisdictions to be singled out on a basis that makes sense in light of current conditions, Roberts wrote. It cannot simply rely on the past explaining that uh, things had changed much during the four decades when the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was initially passed. Of course, the Voting Rights Act also had provisions by which jurisdictions could be removed from that pre-clearance requirement if they were able to stop enacting racially discriminatory laws, and it also had provisions to bail in jurisdictions found to be egregious violators. The court ignored those provisions, which had been used at various times over the years, leaving those provisions in the law, but simply removing all of the states, all of the states and jurisdictions from pre-clearance requirements until Congress was able to come up with a new formula for its Section 5 list of jurisdictions that would require permission from the federal government before enacting new election laws. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, in her blistering dissent to that 5-4 to four majority at the time in uh, the Shelby decision, uh, which gutted the landmark Civil Rights Era Act era law, uh, said that the court had erred egregiously she compared gutting of the list of jurisdictions covered by Section 5, which had worked so well for nearly 50 years, to throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm simply because you are not getting wet. Since the Shelby decision in 2013, dozens of states once covered by Section 5 have have now implemented election laws that were later found to have been racially discriminatory. What a surprise! In North Carolina, for example, where they passed what many described as the worst voter suppression law since the Jim Crow era, the uh, federal appeals court struck down most of that law, finding that it targeted African Americans with, quote, surgical precision. But the most relentless, years-long attempt to prevent minority voters from being able to cast their legal vote must be seen, I think, perhaps in the state of Texas, where Republicans there have been fighting for a full decade now to enact a strict photo ID voting restriction, despite the fact that, as a federal court eventually found, some 600,000 perfectly legal, already registered voters lack the type of ID required under this strict law, and that the restriction amounts to nothing more than a poll tax that violated both the Voting Rights Act and the U.S. Constitution. Even the most conservative appeals court in the land, the Fifth Circuit, agreed with most of that judge's findings, uh, though they had some questions about whether the racially discriminatory law simply had the effect of being uh, discriminatory or if it was passed with that intent by GOP lawmakers. That's a crucial distinction. And if so, if it was done on purpose, there could be serious ramifications for the state of Texas since they could be bailed back in 
to that Section 5 federal preclearance requirement of the Voting Rights Act. Well, it sure seems like that moment to bail Texas back in is now long overdue. As our friend Ari Berman reports today at Mother Jones, on August 15th of this year, a three-judge federal court in San Antonio ruled that Texas's 2013 congressional redistricting maps were enacted with, quote, racially discriminatory intent against Latino and African-American voters. Just two days later, on August 17, the very conservative 5th District uh, Court of Appeals ruled the Texas restrictions on assistance to non-English-speaking voters also violated the Voting Rights Act. And now, just six days later, on August 23 of this week, a federal district court in Corpus Christi ruled once again that Texas's voter ID law amended by the state legislature in 2017 also had a discriminatory purpose when passed against minority voters. That's three rulings, Berman notes, against Texas for discriminating against minority voters in just eight days. Moreover, Wednesday's decision was the eighth finding of intentional discrimination by the courts against Texas since 2011. As Zachary Roth explains over at the Daily Democracy, in addition to finding the state's new version of the photo ID law to be intentionally discriminatory, U.S. District Court Judge Nelva Gonzalez-Ramos accused Texas of voter intimidation and completely blocked the state from enforcing either their previous photo ID law, SB 14, or the one passed this year to try and soften the one that had previously been found to be uh, uh, discriminatory, uh, SB 5, both of those laws uh, have now been permanently blocked by this judge, and that the uh, she also found that the uh, ruling could finally portend a return to federal preclearance for the state of Texas, which clearly seems long overdue for Texas. Here to detail this latest finding of purposeful racial discrimination by the state of Texas is Zachary Roth. He's a journalist formerly of MSNBC.com, now of the DailyDemocracy.org. He's also author of The Great Suppression, Voting Rights, Corporate Cash, and the Conservative Assault on Democracy, published just uh, late last year. Zach Roth, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thanks for having me on. Great to have you here. Uh, we have been uh, covering this uh, this Texas photo ID battle uh, at bradblog.com and the Bradcast since at least 2007. Uh, and I don't know if you were covering it back then or not when, when Democratic State Senator Mario Gallego, uh, who was just out of a liver transplant, he had a hospital bed set up just off the state Senate floor so he could be the deciding vote trying to block this photo ID measure. Well, eventually they got it passed, as you know, in, uh, in 2011. But it's been blocked time and time again by the federal courts. So how is this law even in place, Zach, at this time? And, and what did Judge Gonzalez Ramos, what did that ruling on Wednesday determine that had not been determined before in this case? Uh, well, first of all, you got me beat. I, I was not covering this back in 2007. Uh, <laughs> so I, I'm familiar with that story. Um, you know, this this is kind of the, the Rasputin of voting laws. It, it refuses to die. 
Um, I, I think this was the uh, sixth finding of intentional racial discrimination against this specific voter ID law since it was passed in 2011. Mm -hmm. um, the reason it, it, it hangs around is because Texas continues to appeal, uh, and, and the, the court system, the, the, the appeals court, in the end, though it agreed with the district court that this was intentional racial discrimination, it remanded the, the issue back to the district court to figure out a solution for it. So mm -hmm. now we're in the solution phase, and we have been for a year or two. And Texas, of course, has been dragging its feet throughout this process to kind of keep the law hanging around for as long as possible. Mm -hmm. but, but, you know, things are beginning to get resolved, it looks like, with this decision. Uh, and this judge, Nova Gonzalez-Ramos, who was, was the judge of the original 2014 decision finding intentional discrimination, both of these rulings incredibly sort of careful and well-reasoned and, and cogent. And what she found uh, in, in Wednesday's ruling was that the, the new kind of modified voter ID law that Texas passed this year does not do nearly enough to fix the problems of the original law that led to it being blocked. Um, she, she found it doesn't significantly expand the list of acceptable photo IDs. Um, the one, in one way that it does expand that list, it says um, seniors, people over 70, can use expired IDs, no matter how long ago they expired. Well, that, she found, only has the impact of making it even more racially discriminatory, because people over 70 in Texas are more, much more likely to be white. So in, in that way, it, it, it only makes the, the law worse. Um, she, the law doesn't make IDs any easier to obtain. Uh, it doesn't say that Texas has to provide any particular number or schedule of mobile offices that issue IDs. That was a particular problem that was found with the original law, that people didn't have access to IDs, and the schedule for, for getting them out to communities was very kind of bare bones. Mm -hmm. uh, it also doesn't require the legislature to spend any money on a public education campaign. That's a key part of all of these voter ID laws. The big problem is often confusion. People don't understand the new rules. Maybe they do have acceptable ID, but they don't realize that they do. So you need a very robust public education campaign to make, make the new rules clear to people. There's nothing in this new law that does that. Um, and then finally, and, and maybe most importantly, what, what seems to sort of offend her most was that in, in the new law, if you don't have acceptable ID, you can still cast a regular vote as long as you sign an affidavit that says, I am who I say I am, and this is the reason why I don't have ID. It's called a reasonable impediment. And any reasonable impediment is supposed to be accepted. Mm -hmm. She said there's no good reason why Texas needs to know the reason why you don't have an ID. And the only effect that that is going to have is going to be to intimidate people who perhaps don't understand the process uh, out of voting at all. So she says, um, you know, requiring a voter to address more issues than necessary under penalty of perjury, and that's like there's a threat of jail time, mm -hmm. by the way, um, appear to be efforts at voter intimidation. And that's a quote from her, that, in her ruling. That's a remarkably strong statement from a judge about a, a, a state's intentions. And and that's um, that's so really a, a, that that's yeah. no small matter that uh, because the, the, the increasing the penalties for why people are signing these reasonable impediments because I, I as I recall last year in the run up to the general election in November when they had sort of 
uh, struck this agreement, this settlement to, to get us through the uh, the November election. You had some election officials who say who were saying, hey, we're going to investigate people who sign this reasonable impediment uh, declaration to find out if they really because I think one of the reasons was, well, I didn't have time uh, to get this uh, free ID or something like that. And they were threatening to investigate these people and uh, essentially, as you say, potentially throw them in jail, fine them if they found that they had not told the truth, if they had lied in some reason. That is very intimidating, or it can be, uh, and, and yet that intimidation only applies to those that don't have the type of photo IDs that are needed. And in this case, the judge had already found that it focused more on uh, minorities that concern uh, than it did on white folks. That, that's exactly right. It was the elections director of, of Harris County, the largest county in Texas, which of course has an enormous minority population, who, who was talking before the last election about investigating people for right. for you know potentially lying on the affidavit. And just to make one other quick point on the sort of education issue. There was a study that came out a couple months ago by, by, uh, from Rice University in Houston uh, that, that found it was actually a relatively small number of people who didn't have acceptable ID last year. But what had a much larger effect in keeping people from voting was just the confusion around it, that there was, there was a much larger number of people who did have the right ID but who didn't, who didn't realize it. Um, and so, again, that's, when that kind of dovetails with the intimidation factor, mm-hmm. that's where you're, you're seeing the potential for large numbers of voters being disenfranchised. And though they found, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, Zach, uh, but they, while they found it was a relatively small number of people who had to sign those reasonable impediment documents in order to be able to vote, we don't really know. We know there are some 600,000 registered voters who don't have the uh, acceptable type of ID. We don't know how many of those just simply chose not to show up and vote at all because they determined they didn't have the right type of ID. Am I correct about that? Well, we don't know. The, the, the study I was referring to was, was, you know, it worked by, by phone interviews with people just mm-hmm. asking them whether they had the, the right, what kind mm-hmm. of ID they had. So mm-hmm. it was trying to determine that just based on asking them rather than people who showed up at the polls necessarily. But it's true that, that we really don't have a good picture of how many people were deterred just by the fact that they didn't believe they had the right ID. Um, and again, 600,000, over 600,000 registered voters believed not to have the right ID. 1.2 million, according to the plaintiffs, at least in the case, 1.2 million eligible Texas voters. And that's really sort of the more significant number, I've always thought, because you don't want to confine voting just to people who are already registered to vote, especially Mm -hmm. in a state like Texas, where you're getting newly eligible people all the time. There was uh, another uh, study, I believe, by ProPublica finding that uh, between June of 2013 and April of 2017, The state, uh, though they make these uh, so-called free IDs available for those who don't have them, you still have, well, for one, you still have to get to the, to uh, to a a DMV in order to get them. You have to have the underlying documents, which sometimes cost money to get these so-called free IDs in Texas. There are some places where you have to drive like a three-hour round trip to get to the nearest DMV. It's such a huge state, but they found that from uh, 2013 to 2017, just 869 free IDs 
were given out. That would seem to underscore what the judge is saying here, that there has been no effort by the state of Texas to educate people about these uh, IDs, to to put out these mobile uh, vans to, to get them to people when, you know, 869 IDs were given out in four years out of 600,000 registered voters who lack them. Uh, did, did she speak to that uh, issue in her uh, in her ruling? Well, she, she did, and, and what she, she, you know, was the biggest problem with this modified law was that it, it didn't, you know, Texas promised that they would do a public education campaign around this new law, but the law doesn't contain any requirements for how much money they have to spend on that. So without that dollar figure, there's really no way to hold them to that. Um, and on that point about, about the difficulty of obtaining ID and having to drive two or three hours, one of the most important findings of the original decision was that that burden is disproportionately placed on minority voters, too. So minority voters tend to live further from ID-issuing offices uh, and therefore have more trouble getting one in addition to everything else. You know, in, in Iowa, where they passed the voter ID law this year, and there's plenty of problems with that law, mm-hmm. but what they did was they just mailed a, a, a voter ID to every registered voter. There's no reason why Texas couldn't do the same thing, uh, except for the fact that it, it seems to want to continue to make IDs as, as difficult to get as possible. It sure does. Uh, Texas uh, Attorney General Ken Paxton, who, by the way, uh, unless something has changed, I believe he is still himself, the Attorney General, still himself under federal indictment uh, for securities Uh fraud, I believe. Uh, He called the ruling outrageous, uh, and I believe he has already appealed it to the uh, Fifth Circuit Court. Uh, I'm wondering if you know on what grounds uh, at this point they are appealing it after, you know, it was funny, Zach, yesterday, nobody could remember on Twitter, was it six times, was it eight times, was it 11 times? Nobody could remember how many times this law has been found time and again uh, to be discriminatory. But so uh, on what grounds would they possibly be appealing this? And uh, I guess it goes to the Fifth Circuit. Um, will they uh, rule any differently than they have before on this case? Because they upheld the lower court uh, previously, even though they're, they're the most yeah. uh, conservative court in the land. Yeah. But by my count, it's six times that it's been found to be intentionally racially discriminatory. But but I may be off by one on that. It's, it's hard to keep track. Yes. Um, I, I think, you know, they were always going to appeal an adverse ruling. And I, I think their argument is this modified ID law uh, is, is very similar, almost the same, as the, the interim remedy that the judge herself approved before the last election, mm-hmm. uh, which involved this affidavit option for people who don't have ID. So they're going to say, how, how can this be intentionally racially discriminatory if it's the very same approach that you yourself, judge, approved? Mm-hmm. Um, and the response to that, that the judge herself wrote in, in Wednesday's ruling, is that there was no claim that the interim remedy uh, fixed all the racial discrimination problems that existed under the Voting Rights Act. It was just an interim remedy that they needed to get through with a, with a presidential election coming up. Mm. So um, I don't know that that argument would necessarily fare too well in the Fifth Circuit. I obviously can't predict what they're going to rule. I do think it's possible that they could disagree with, with the district court judge on the intentional discrimination issue. They could find it discriminatory but not intentionally discriminatory, mm. which is sort of what they seem to be saying in, in their previous ruling when they passed it back down to her to, to, to again look at the question of whether it was intentionally racially discriminatory. Well, I, about speculation, and 
And as Rick Hassan has written, it's likely to wind up before the Supreme Court. So that's probably going to be the big the big decision. Uh, yeah, I think so. And I'm going to ask you about that in a second, Zach. But the, uh, the DOJ had been uh, fighting with the plaintiffs here uh, in this case for years uh, until Trump's election. And you had Attorney General Jeff Sessions flip the, de- uh, the, the Department of Justice's position on this. Uh, did, did that have any impact one way or another on the judge's ruling, as far as you can tell? Uh, I don't know if it had any impact one one way or the other. Um, it, it was sort of noteworthy that it, at one point in the opinion, she kind of goes out of her way to to um, kind of smack down the, the, the Justice Department lawyers and a, a point that they tried to make, where where they had argued in a brief that the burden of proof was on the challengers to the law to say why it, it remained, it continued to be racially discriminatory. And she said, um, basically, flatly, the Justice Department lawyers have got this wrong. They've misinterpreted this past precedent, and the burden is on the state to show that it's not. Um, so, sort of a, a little bit of an a, of a embarrassing kind of moment for the Justice Department after it, as you said, it started out on the plaintiff's side, and under Sessions, switched to, to supporting Texas in this case. From your years uh, covering these issues, your work on your book, The Great Suppression, uh, published late last year, have you have you been able to find any legitimate evidence to support the need for this voting restriction in Texas? Did they present any in any of the court cases here, uh, or frankly, any of the other states where they have been pushing uh, nearly identical laws for the for these? Uh, photo ID restrictions. Is there any evidence that they would actually stop voter fraud? No. I mean, as as you know, and I'm sure your your listeners know, um, because the, the press has actually done a pretty good job on, on this question over the last couple of years, um, th- there's, there's no evidence at all that, that this kind of in-person uh, voter impersonation fraud uh, is a problem on any kind of significant significant level that there, there's only a, a handful of cases of it across the country over the last 10 or 15 years i believe there's two cases in texas since 2000 um you know what's interesting is another point that the district court judge made in her her earlier opinion that there is a, a more significant problem with voter fraud in terms of absentee uh ballots mm-hmm. it's much easier obviously to, to to commit fraud with an absentee ballot but this voter id law uh, did nothing to stop absentee ballot fraud, yep. which she saw as a very clear indication that Texas was not motivated by the need to stop fraud, but instead by the need to make it more difficult for certain groups to vote. Yeah, that's always been the case. Uh, there is voter fraud, and it drives me a little bit crazy when when I hear uh, Democrats saying there is no voter fraud in this country. Well, there is, but it generally takes place via absentee ballot, which these laws do absolutely nothing about because they're you know they're they're they only require a, a polling place photo ID. Uh, there was uh, and, and and sorry, Brad, just yeah. to, just to interject on that very quickly, Texas because Texas did just pass a, a month about a month ago a law that, that aims to tighten the restrictions on absentee voting to address absentee voter fraud. But as the plaintiffs in the voter ID case have been saying, they, they appear to have done that uh, clearly with an eye on the voter ID case to get rid of this suggestion that they don't care about voter wow. fraud and that they, the voter ID law is just designed to, to suppress votes. Um, so that, that's, all, that's all 
part of the story now. And, and what of that? Uh, speaking of the other laws, there, what of that uh, law? I hadn't wasn't familiar with that. The law that limits the use of interpreters at polling place that was also apparently struck down a few days ago. I had missed that one. What was that case about? Yeah, I hadn't been been paying super close attention to it either. But um, they passed a law that um, that bars uh, interpreters from. Um, going into the, the polling booth um, with voters. And uh, th- this was applied uh, in a recent election where a, a woman who was an immigrant from India and did not speak English, uh, her son accompanied her into the voting booth, and they said that he wasn't allowed to, and um, mm. she had to leave without being able to figure out how to vote. Um, clearly uh, targeting um, Hispanic voters and other non-English speaking voters uh, and making it more difficult to vote. I personally have witnessed voting in Texas where um, a a couple of of, um, Hispanic ladies showed up at a polling place, didn't speak English. There was no poll worker there who could speak Spanish and who could help them figure out how to vote, and they left uh, without being able to vote. So, Mm -hmm. you know, having somebody there who can interpret for you, obviously is an enormous factor in, in being able to vote for a lot of people. Yep. Um, and this was an attempt to make that more difficult. And, and again, as you said, the court found Texas guilty of intentional racial discrimination. Yeah, and you know, I haven't voted in Texas, but out here in California, I have I, I uh, read and speak English fairly well, and I have a difficult time <laughs> interpreting uh, a lot of these ballot propositions that are, I think are written intentionally to be confusing, uh, much less yes. if you know English was my second language or if I didn't speak it at all. Uh, so, okay... It, it, this is a case I suspect will head one way or another to the Supreme Court as uh, friend Rick Hassan over there from uh, uh, UC Irvine has uh, argued. This is uh, goes to a stolen Republican majority on the Supreme Court, it seems. So unless the Fifth Circuit Court restores the law, the law, I guess, if it stays as it currently is today, she has struck it down per- uh, uh, permanently but permanently can also be changed by the appeals court. Would there be time to restore it uh, before uh, primary elections uh, start uh, pretty soon uh, in 2018 at this point? Um, I don't know the the timing on that, to be honest. I I would assume that the district court, the the way that this has has dragged on already, if it stays on the same schedule, I, I wouldn't think that the appeals court would make a ruling uh, until sometime later next year, uh, and, and so I don't know if that's in time for primary voting. Or, like, it could mm-hmm. be in time for the general election. But as you say, the big decision is going to come from the Supreme Court. It, it looks like, and and not and that will not only affect this Texas voter ID law, but it seems likely, I think, that the Supreme Court will use this case to issue a broader ruling that kind of clarifies what. Uh, what kinds of voting restrictions are allowable under the existing Voting Rights Act and what are not. And, and as you say, it will go to a Republican or a conservative majority Supreme Court. And so, you know, once again, we're all waiting on Anthony Kennedy and, and how he happens to feel on the, on the day in question, I guess. And this would be the big, uh, the big kahuna that we've been waiting for for years to determine one way or another if these 
types of photo ID restrictions are, in fact, constitutional, right. not just for Texas, right. as you note, uh, Zach, but for the entire nation. Got uh, just right. a quick second here, and uh, since we didn't get to talk about your book last year, give me the broad overview, and we'll we'll try to discuss it in more detail in the in the coming weeks and months. But the the Great Suppression, voting rights, corporate cash, and the conservative assault on democracy. Title seems to explain it well, but what do you conclude uh, from your from your work in that book? Uh, thanks for me to talk a bit about it. The, the book is really um, about a sort of multi-pronged conservative assault on democracy. I, I argue so. Voting rights is one major piece of that, and we've talked a lot about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but another piece is the kind of assault on campaign finance regulations, which have allowed multimillionaires and corporations to. to you know, pour unlimited sums into political campaigns and given them much more influence than ordinary people. Um, another piece of this, of course, is the gerrymandering that we saw after the 2010 census, which has given Republicans, you know, many more seats in the U.S. House and in state legislatures than their vote share deserves. Um, and then another kind of less covered part of it that I write about is this wave of um, what's called state-level preemption laws where um, states, including Texas, also North Carolina, Wisconsin, a bunch of other Republican-controlled states, have passed laws uh, barring local governments from passing progressive legislation on the minimum wage, on environmental issues, on public health, uh, on a range of issues, um, and and really attacking local democracy. So just to give a quick example, Birmingham, Alabama, passed a law raising the minimum wage in Birmingham, and it was going to help largely African-American fast food workers, uh, raising the wage to $10.10 an hour. Alabama came in, the the Republican, all-white Republican uh, lawmakers in Alabama came in and passed a law barring cities from raising their minimum wages, and of course it applied retroactively, so it took away the, the raise that Birmingham passed. So really an assault on the ability of local communities to kind of determine their their own directions. And I see that as part of this larger, you know, conservative assault on democracy as they begin to realize that demographic trends and ideological trends are not in their favor. Okay. Uh, and another thing, of course, I write about is the Electoral College. And I, and I wrote that, you know, before the last election, but, but the ability of the Electoral College to give the White House to the the candidate who gets fewer votes um, and how sort of undemocratic I think we can all understand that is. Uh, And, of course, that was borne out, too. That's a whole lot of undemocracy in one book, uh, and uh, kind of makes you sad, makes makes us feel like we are screwed. Well, unscrew yourself by visiting thedailydemocracy.org, uh, buy Zach's book, The Great Suppression. Follow him on the Twitters at Zach Roth. Uh, Zach, really appreciate you joining us here today, and uh, we're going to bug you again to do it again in the not-too-distant future. Sounds great. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. Thank you. Okay, running a little bit late here, so quick break, and we are back with uh, more broadcast, uh, including uh, news, more news out of Texas on this hurricane, and much more straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away.
Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, Desi Doyen, I wish I hadn't asked Zach about his book there at the end of that segment. <laughs> Why? Well, it's just, it reminds me uh, just on how many levels uh, we are just, uh, democracy in the United States is just under assault, under assault from right-wingers. I hate to say it, whether you're a, a Republican or a Democrat, I don't care, but this is Republicans who are trying to make it harder for the people to express their voice at the ballot box, period. And whether it's, you know, gaming it through gerrymandering, through uh, money and in, in, in politics, through these uh, photo ID restrictions, through just, you know, changing the laws, gutting the Voting Rights Act, it's uh, it's distressing at yes. times. Yes. It feels like it's, uh, you know, a fight that we've been on for about 15 years. Yeah. And uh, well, this is something we've talked about a lot, that these are fights that will continue. They will always continue as long as there are humans who experience greed and wish to take over systems so that they can profit from them. But we and sh- other reasons like that. But uh, yes. And but we should not lose sight that uh, this was good news in Texas. Yes, uh, this is very good news. We'll see if it holds, uh, given we have that stolen uh, Supreme Court. So we will see where all of this goes. Uh, but we've got some more news coming up uh, on Texas shortly. And uh, speaking of lost causes, <laughs> Afghanistan. Uh-oh. We had a, uh, uh, a, a great uh, conversation with Juan Cole, a uh, Middle East uh, South Asia expert and uh, longtime progressive blogger at Informed Comment. Uh, over at WanCole.com. Had a great discussion with him about Donald Trump's flip-flop on Afghanistan and the uh, continuing quagmire for which it seems there is no way out. Um, so you can download, if you missed that uh, conversation, I've uh, been getting a lot of feedback on it. You can go to bradblog.com, download it uh, for free, or your favorite uh, uh, podcast site, iTunes, etc., Uh, But I got a couple of uh, thoughts from listeners that I wanted to share and that I wanted to get Juan's response to. So um, and I did. So uh, from uh, some listeners uh, from Mark at Bradblog.com in comments uh, says they want to keep skimming the profits on Afghanistan's famous cash crop. The Taliban made the mistake in early 2001 of declaring it un-Islamic to grow opium anymore. A few months later, the U.S. invaded and production resumed. Uh, He cites a book, The Politics of Heroin, by Alfred McCoy as a good read. Uh, Similarly, in the comments section at bradblog.com, Will R. says, Great show. Love your podcast. I'm a frequent listener. I appreciate your interview with Juan Cole, but I feel I need... Uh, I feel the need to point out that he did not at all answer your question, why are we there? 
Very telling, he says, that the words pipeline, opium, and heroin were absent. When the invasion began in 2001, it was presented as a response to 9-11. But in reality, says Will R., uh, as all of our uh, recent military escapades, it was about where the pipelines were going to be laid. Uh, he says, see, for example, the U.S. offering the Taliban earlier in 2001, quote, a carpet of gold or a carpet of bombs. Um, so uh, before 9-11, the U.S. told its allies that it was going to invade Afghanistan before the snows fell. And, of course, the heroin industry, one of the most profitable in the world and about which the least truth is told in our media. Uh, that's from Will R. And finally, Alex uh, rings in with a similar thought. Afghanistan is the source of up to 90 percent of the world's poppies, and we have an opiate problem now. Maybe the Afghan war, like the opium war in China in the 19th century, is about more than terrorism or colonialism. Well, uh, there was uh, so I wanted to ask Juan about that because we didn't talk much about that angle. And as well, I had failed to ask Professor Cole uh, since we got onto the difficulty of ever being able to get out of Afghanistan at all. Uh, as difficult as it may be to ever uh, get there, to ever get to the possibility of an exit, what would the conditions uh, B, to actually achieve uh, an exit. What would that actually look like for the U.S.? Because we were talking about the idea that we are going to, as of now, be there forever. This will be our forever war, apparently. So anyway, I sent those uh, comments from those readers and my question to, uh, to Professor Cole for a response. He sends the following. The 1990s idea of a gas pipeline from Turkmenistan to India through Afghanistan, which an oil company pushed was never very plausible and never gained a significant constituency in Washington. It is certainly not why the U.S. is in Afghanistan, he says. The U.S. did substantial poppy crop eradication in 2005 and 2006, but it backfired because it hurt farmers. And then they turned to the Taliban. There is a glut of opioids in the world, and the U.S. is not in Afghanistan for the drug trade or apparently to stop it either. Economic reasons for imperialism are always attractive in principle, but great power politics has other dynamics as well. He says neither Afghanistan nor Syria have any economic value, but both have become important to great powers, one to the U.S. and the other to Russia. Because powers like spheres of influence, blocking other powers, bases, and they also like a low-intensity war because it allows them to show off their arms industry and keep their arms ba uh, battle ready. I'm sorry, and keep their armies battle ready. These are not, however, reasons for invading, only perceived benefits of remaining. Fear of terrorism by Muslim extremists drives both Washington and Moscow, Cole says. The big question about fear of terrorism driving remaining in Afghanistan is whether those fears are overblown. If you had an isolationist administration, a real one, not a phony one like Trump, he says, that decided the terrorist threat from abroad is overblown, and that Russia or Iran or Pakistan or India could handle Afghanistan, then the U.S. would come home. Obama would have liked to get out, even tried to involve China, 
The mothers of the Communist Party of China's Politburo members, however, did not raise any dummies. Cheers, says Juan. So uh, that's his response to uh, to those thoughts. I wanted to share those uh, with you because I know there's a lot of information, a lot of misinformation out there. Uh, take Juan's thoughts for what they are. He has been an expert uh, in this region for decades now. Uh, so I wanted to get his uh, his thoughts on that. And if, uh, you know, there's any reason to believe we will ever get out. Well, apparently not unless Russia or Iran or Pakistan or India uh, feel like stepping up and taking over Afghanistan. And at least a few of those countries have uh, learned in the past that does not end well. So, hey, we broke it. We bought it just as uh Colin Powell had warned us, although I think he was talking about Iraq. At he the was, time. but it's still the same concept. It still applies. All right, uh, quick break, and we're back with Desi Doyen, Green News Report, and some other stories since then that are developing, some other green stories that's ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Remember me, the guy who was warning you about Donald Trump from the day he entered the race, when the rest of the U.S. media were telling you his candidacy was a joke, that he'd never win, and that Hillary Clinton had it in the bag. We told you otherwise from the beginning and up until Election Day. Well, we may have been right, but we still don't have corporate or foundational support. We still rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to support the work that Desi Doyen and I do every day. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thank you. Desi Doyen has been trying to stop global warming for years. <laughs> she has failed. Yes, I have. You That's are a true. failure. Welcome back to the Bradcast. <laughs> Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, by the way, once again, if you want to download that uh, interview, that conversation with Juan Cole, you can get it uh, at bradblog.com for free. And uh, you can uh, drop comments there in response to any of this or uh, drop me an email if you prefer. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. Okay, before we can even get to today's Green News report, a whole bunch of Green News has been sort of breaking all day. Uh, let's start, uh, Desi Doyen, with uh, the Interior Department. Uh, Secretary Ryan Zinke has uh, apparently come to the end of his uh, investigation onto whether we are going to shut down national monuments for the first time ever. Yes, remember this was an executive order by Donald Trump telling uh, Zinke to review 27 national monuments. Most of them were designated by Obama, but there were a few included from Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton. and for George Bush as well. So he has submitted his recommendations. That has not been made public. And the question now is whether or not the White House will make the full recommendation list public basically so which ones are which ones are going to shut down we what don't national he's monuments not gonna are going to shut down away? any no what? national monuments are going away so he talks about how we're not going to shut down any national monuments but he will recommend redrawing some of them to reduce their size that's really unprecedented for a president now to interfere uh with these uh, national monuments to be redrawn so he would either have to get the uh, congress to go along with 
changing the size of these, uh, some of these, a few, a handful, he says, of these uh, monuments. We don't know which ones. Right. He either had to get Congress to go along with it or he'd have to uh, use some provision that nobody knows actually exists for a president to be able to do that. Yeah, and so that's something that will be probably thoroughly adjudicated by all of the environmental groups who are gearing up to sue as soon as the monuments are made uh, public. Um, So right now, uh, Representative Dina Titus of Nevada, she's a Democrat, she said, so they recognize that legally they can't undo national monument designations, but the devil is in the details. There is nothing here to celebrate yet. So the question now becomes how will the unpredictable Trump respond to this recommendation. And will he say, no, you're wrong, Zinky. I want to shut down all of those monuments uh, anyway. So we, Well, yeah, it's so we interesting don't when you yeah. think about the fact that, you know, Trump has made a big deal of trying to preserve Confederate statues and monuments, <laughs> yeah. but not so much about the public lands that are protected by our national monuments. Good point. Uh, okay, so that's uh, one piece of news. Also, this power grid report that we have been waiting on from the Energy Department, uh, yes, Department the de- of Energy. Right. The yeah. Department of Energy conducted a, what they called a grid reliability study. This is a fairly pedestrian concept, but Rick Perry, the Secretary of Energy, had made suggestions that the reason that they were going to do this grid reliability study was so that they could say, look, renewables are making the grid unreliable. We need to put more money toward coal. But it turns out that the staff, the career staff at the Department of Energy, has not followed through with that. So the, the not crazy people. The not crazy the, between, the people who know stuff at the Department of Energy. Yes. Okay. However, I will say, though, that between yeah. the draft version that was leaked and the final version that came out today, um, it does appear that they have massaged the words somewhat. So it's not quite as uh, complimentary for renewables as before. Just the real top line. The, the politicians, yes, the, political the political pointees staff. have massaged what the career uh, scientists at uh, yeah. Energy. Yeah, so said. basically the, the, the headline is here that uh, the grid reliability study finds what pretty much anybody who knows anything about the markets has already determined, that renewable energy does not harm the grid at all. Solar Renew- energy, wind, wind energy. energy does- hydropower helps actually to stabilize prices and helps keep American electricity prices low. And doesn't and, and doesn't cause outages in does the not grid. Cause outages, doesn't make it does unreliable. Not, nothing like that whatsoever. It finds oh. that, re- that natural gas is the primary player in shutting down coal and nuclear plants because, you know, natural gas is abundant and cheaper than coal and nuclear plants are. And and that renewable energy was not the major player. It was a secondary player in the shutdown of coal and nuclear plants. It also found that... In the, the shutdown of coal and nuclear plants, not the shutdown of the grid. The grid is fine and is right. not interrupted at all by these renewables. Right. And part of this was to say, hey, can the Trump administration find justification to keep focusing on coal and nuclear? So it does find that the grid is now more reliable than ever. And that's great news. But there were some hints in this final version that do indicate that maybe they're going to try to put in some future support for coal. And they were, yeah, because they were they were pushing coal and they were pushing nuclear in yes. this report. It and seems of course, like. they're not the same. Coal is dirty. Nuclear is clean, at least on its emissions. Yeah. And I have always had to put uh, the word clean in quotes when yeah. we're talking about uh, nuclear uh, clean as far as emissions go. Not so clean as far as all that radioactive waste that we have no exactly. idea what to do with ever anywhere. Okay. Uh, that said, let's get to our latest Green News report because we've already got an update on one of the stories in the report concerning what is now Hurricane Harvey 
apparently named after my father, developing in the Gulf, heading to Texas and Louisiana. So let's get to it. Our latest Green News report. It's sort of like home on the range where never is heard a discouraging word. And the coal dust isn't toxic all day. Trump administration halts study on health impacts of mountaintop removal coal mining. New Orleans still grappling with flood emergency as potential hurricane brews in the Gulf of Mexico. Volkswagen is bringing back the iconic minibus, and this time it's electric. Plus, California again proves Trump wrong. Climate regulations actually boost economic growth. Shocking. All of those stories and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. We have become an energy exporter for the first time ever just recently. That's true. If by recently he means May of 2011. Thanks, Obama. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, trouble in New Orleans with a hurricane heading its way? Uh, Yeah, kind of. As we go to air, the National Hurricane Center is warning that a new storm, Harvey, is now brewing in the Gulf of Mexico and could drop insane amounts of rain on both Texas and Louisiana. And that's really bad news for the city of New Orleans, which has been in a state of emergency since an early August storm dumped nearly a foot of rain in just four hours, causing widespread flooding and forcing city officials to admit that some of the city's pumps have been offline for repairs during peak hurricane season. Uh-oh. Yep, now the New Orleans Advocate reports that city officials may evacuate the city if it is forecast to receive more than a foot of rain in a 24-hour period. And by the way, next week is the 12th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. Oh boy. Meanwhile, scientists are warning the administration's latest move may hurt more than help coal country. The Trump administration's Interior Department has ordered the National Academies of Sciences to stop work on a study of the health impacts of mountaintop removal coal mining. Mountaintop removal coal mining is exactly like it sounds. It's a method that literally blasts off the tops of mountains, dumping the debris into valleys and streams below where people live. Numerous previous studies have linked mountaintop removal in West Virginia to elevated rates of cancer, heart disease, and birth defects. So stay officials requested a federal assessment. Bob Kincaid, founder of West Virginia's Coal River Mountain Watch in an interview on the broadcast, said the administration's decision to halt this health study shields the coal industry. They were going to say that there does appear to be a scientific reason to be concerned about the harm that mountaintop removal coal extraction does to people who live near it. And that would have created a controversy and a storm that the coal industry could not have weathered. Weird. So Donald Trump's claims about how much he loves coal miners uh, is actually not true because this study might have found that coal mining was killing coal miners and their families. Go figure. And even worse than that, last week the Environmental Protection Agency announced that it will revoke an Obama-era rule that required operators of coal-fired power plants to limit toxic metals in their wastewater discharge. 
it seems like this administration really does not want to find out the impacts of coal pollution. Drink up, coal miners. But some good news. California's state economy is booming, even as the state has rolled out a host of new regulations to curb carbon emissions and fight climate change. What? (laughs) According to a new report... After implementation of California's landmark cap-and-trade law, statewide per capita emissions fell by 12 percent. And at the same time, the state's per capita GDP grew at double the national average. For every one fossil fuel job, the state now has eight renewable energy jobs. And since the launch of cap-and-trade, California now leads the nation in the number of clean energy patents and is now the most energy-productive economy in the world, meaning it uses the least amount of energy for every dollar of economic activity. So when Donald Trump told us in Phoenix that the Paris Climate Accord would kill jobs... California made him a liar yet again? (laughs) Yes, it did. Not hard to do. Finally, it's official. German carmaker Volkswagen, while trying to redeem itself after being caught cheating on pollution standards in the U.S. and Europe, announced this week it is bringing back its iconic Volkswagen minibus in 2022. Only this time, that minibus will be all electric. Cool. How about uh, an electric bug? Where's that? Hopefully coming soon. Still waiting on you, Volkswagen. For much more on all of these stories and the many we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget you can download our reports anytime via Stitcher, TuneIn, or iTunes. Find us, follow us, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. So, uh, some good news there uh, from Volkswagen, who, no, we don't yet uh, forgive them, Carl Howard, at uh, Facebook. But uh, some good news, nonetheless, that you are now ready to uh, ruin with our closing thoughts on what's going on with Hurricane Harvey. Yes, Hurricane Harvey is uh, is forecast to hit on the Texas coast uh, as a Category 3 hurricane and is expected to stall, dropping, I don't know, God knows what kinds of amounts of rain. They are predicting um, several two- feet. Yes. But the, the worst ones are four feet of rain over three to four days. The ground is not ready for that. It's already saturated from previous rainstorms. And so uh, it looks like it's going to hit, as of now anyway, uh, the Texas coast. But as it hangs around, as it doesn't move, that's the big worry, whether it moves out or not. Yes, we'll keep an eye on that. And whether it will uh, also uh, bring in tons of rain to New Orleans, which cannot handle it right now because their pumps are broken. We'll keep watching. All right, I got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Zachary Roth of thedailydemocracy.org, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. You can drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the bradblog. And my thanks to all of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to become active supporters, monthly supporters of uh, the Bradcast and bradblog.com. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.